Well, at a Wednesday night church meeting, a very wealthy man got up to give his testimony. And he rose and he went to the podium and he began with the words, I am a millionaire. He said, I am a millionaire and I credit it all to God's grace and blessing in my life. Everything that I have is because of what God has done to me. He says, I can remember all the way back when this point in my life came and it changed everything forever. He said, I was a young man and I had just earned my very first dollar bill. As a young man, I came to a church meeting that night with my very first dollar bill in my pocket. And the speaker that night was a missionary who was sharing with the church congregation about what he was doing in the mission field. And he asked all of us who were gathered there that night to support him in his work. And the man said that I knew I had a problem. I only had a single dollar bill. One dollar bill was all I had. And I knew I was either going to have to give it all to God or nothing at all. And you know what? I gave it all. And my life has never been the same since. I believe that because of that decision, God has blessed me with all of these riches that I now have today. And the man returned to his seat. And the audience was clearly moved by the story that the man had shared. But there was an older lady, older lady sitting in the same pew next to him. And she leaned over to the man and she said, wonderful story. I dare you to do it again. I dare you to do it again. Giving that single dollar seems inconsequential. But for a man who now had millions of dollars, was he just as committed with those millions as he was with that single dollar that he had? And that's the question for a lot of us. He had a little, but he was willing to give it all. And the lady in the pew asked him, but are you still the same? Are you still willing to give it all? Are you still complete, completely committed and trusting in God and his work? And that's really the question for us, and that's the question that we see posed in Acts chapter 4 this morning. From the passage that Pastor Ryan read a moment ago, we're going to look at a group of people who were completely committed, completely trusting in the work of God. They were wholly and completely surrendered to what he wanted to do. They were living in what we call a spirit-filled community. And that's what I want to explore with all of you this morning. This idea of a spirit-filled community what is that? How do we identify it? What does it look like? And what does our church need to do to be more like this church that we see pictured in Acts chapter 4? Now, as we've gone through Acts the last several weeks, we've seen the birth of the new church. We've seen the falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We've seen the preaching of Peter's sermon at Pentecost where 3,000 were saved. We've seen the assembly of the young church. And we've seen in Acts chapter 2 how they had devoted themselves to the teaching and to the, to the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread. We saw that they were a tight-knit, unified community. We saw how Peter and John went out one day and while ministering in the temple had an opportunity to heal a lame man and give the credit for the healing to Jesus Christ and to preach a sermon based upon that healing miracle and declare the name of Christ to all who were gathered there that day. And the Bible says that as a response to this preaching of the gospel, now 5,000 were saved. So we see the, this young church blossoming and growing and flourishing and they're adding numbers day by day, and they're adding them by the thousands. And the Bible records for us that this group is one that was wholly committed, completely trusting in God, and unified in the message that they were entrusted with. The question for us is, are we as committed to that message? Are we as committed to Christ's church? Are we unified? Are we a witnessing church? Who are we, and what do we need to do? 
The church in Acts was a spirit-filled community. As we read down through those chapters and we see it each and every uh, major interaction or each and every major story, it is always preceded by a filling of the Holy Spirit. The church is never seen as doing anything on its own but always in response to the filling of the Spirit. How were people saved? Through bold preaching that was a result of the filling of the Spirit. How were miracles done? They were done through the Holy Spirit. Everything that we see recorded in the book of Acts in this early church is a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the story that we're going to look at today is not any different. As a result of being Spirit-filled, this church was living in the community, living in a community that God had designed and that God had called it to be. All the way back from the very beginning of the Bible, God had called out a special people unto himself. And he had laid down rules for how they were to live with one another. This church, pictured in Acts chapter 4 today, is living out those commands and those regulations that God had laid down so many hundreds, if not thousands of years before. And we're going to explore what that community looks like and we're going to see how to identify it today. Now, this church that's pictured in Acts is one that, uh, as one commentator I read said, is an admirable but impractical model. An admirable but impractical model. Meaning that he didn't think that the church today could live up to the standard that's set down in the book of Acts. Can we today really live out the standards that are recorded in that book for us today? They are admirable. Seeing a group of people living in true fellowship and unity, completely committed and devoted to the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that possible today? I would challenge you and say, yes, it is. The issue is not so much with how we are living, but the problem of what we're lacking to accomplish how we need to be living. And that's what we want to explore today. We need to understand that not only is the picture that we see in Acts something that is admirable, but it is also something that is very doable. If we as Christ's people are fully committed and willing to surrender ourselves, our own wants and desires to the mission and to the gospel of Christ, we too can live like this early church. And that's what we want to see today. So if you turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 4, we're going to be beginning all the way down in verse 32. And we're going to be looking at this, this Christian community. Now what we want to understand at the outset today is that a spirit-filled church is one that is unified, one that is witnessing, one that is empowered by grace, and one that is made up of a group of individually committed believers. Those are the four topics that we're going to look at today because that's what we see in our story today. Those four things. And we're going to explore that now. Number one, we need to recognize that a spirit-filled community is one that is defined by its unity. A spirit-filled community is one that is defined by its unity. The unity of the early church is what gave it its strength. It is what gave it its effectiveness, what gave it its power in order to carry out the mission that had been set before it. If you look at verse 32, it begins, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The full number of those who believed, all of them, everyone in the early church who was a believer, who had committed themselves to Christ, was of one heart and soul with every other believer. Now pay attention here. The text never says that any of the pretenders that were around were unified or of one heart and soul. It says, but all those who believed, every true believer was united in thought and purpose. We want to understand that this is a large group of people. 
This is not a small number of people. Remember, it began with just 12. It then moved to 70 and to 120 and to 500 and then to 3,000 who were saved at Pentecost and then on to 5,000 saved at the temple and so forth and so on. And the Lord said that he was continuing to add to their numbers day by day. This is a huge group of people. It is a large group of people. How often have you known any large group of people to be unified in anything? To be unified in a single thought or a single purpose, but here to be unified in both. Every one of this large group of new believers, probably new to one another. Most of these people were probably strangers to one another, but they had one thing in common. They were unified toward the message of Christ and the gospel of Christ. That is what they were committed to. It says that they were of one heart and one soul. If we look at those words there, heart simply is the seat of emotion, is what we understand it when we read it through the Bible. It's where our emotion, where our feeling comes from. All of our passions and desires and feelings and emotions come from the heart. The Bible's trying to communicate to us that all of the people gathered here were of one heart. They were of one feeling. They were of one desire. They had one attitude. And that attitude and that desire was toward the gospel of Christ. But it also says that they were of one heart and soul. Soul, we understand, is the seat of our will or our volition. It's where our decisions are made. Some of your translations out there probably substitute the word mind. It's, it's essentially communicating the same thing. It is where your, your faculties allow you to make decisions, where your will occurs, how you decide to do things. If I can give you an example, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to need to go to work. My will is going to force me to go to work because I need to do that. My heart may not necessarily be on the same page. I may desire to stay in bed for just a little while longer or mill around the house and have another cup of coffee. But my will, my soul, my mind is going to drive me from bed and out of the house and off to work. That's kind of what's being communicated here. It says not only are they doing something that they know they should do because it is right, but they are doing this thing because they desire to do it. The two are in agreement. Their desire is in agreement with their will. And that thing that they are committed to and desirous of is the gospel. We saw last week in our last sermon, they had prayed. The believers gathered together and prayed. And if you remember what they prayed for, they prayed for boldness in sharing the truth of the gospel. That's what they prayed for. And that is what they are experiencing. And that is the thing that verse 32 is communicating to us that they are committed to. It's this sharing of the gospel. If you look at that passage from last week, uh, just move up a couple verses in your Bible. I don't have it on your screen. Acts 4.29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for boldness. They received that boldness. God's movement of the Holy Spirit filled them. It shook the place in which they were gathered. And they went out and continued to speak the word with boldness. This was their mission. This was their calling. This is what they were committed to. And they were carrying it out effectively. We need to see here this common theme that keeps running through these stories in the book of Acts. This filling of the Spirit always precedes action by the apostles and by the early church. 
They don't ever go out and do anything on their own. They don't come up with their own designs. They don't put in their own effort. But it is always the filling of the Spirit that motivates them to go. And it is the filling of the Spirit that gives them the effectiveness that they have. Many of us can sit around and devise plans and ideas and programs for witnessing, for sharing the gospel with people, for educating people. But if the Spirit is not involved, they're not going to have any effect. Man alone can't motivate another man to do anything. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And we see in these stories and acts over and over and over again, it is the filling of the Spirit that precedes the effectiveness of the work that they are doing. That's what you and I need to see today in our own lives and in our own church. If we want to be more effective at what it is that God has called us to do, and I think we're all in agreement about that, we need to not be seeking new ideas, new programs, new methods, but we need to be seeking the Spirit of God. We need to be speaking, seeking the Spirit of God and His filling and His power and His grace. And thereby we can receive the effectiveness that we're looking for. See, our motives sometimes are misplaced. We put our faith and trust in ourselves and our abilities and in our knowledge rather than putting our faith and trust in God and His Spirit and His power. That's where it needs to be located. And when we do that and we become unified about that, I believe that God will do the same things through this church that he did through that church. And not until then. That is what God is calling us to do. And I think that is what we need to be doing. So let's explore this unity just a little bit. How important a concept do you think unity is? Probably pretty major, is it not? If you ask any business leader, any coach of a sports team, any pastor of a church, unity is paramount. The team must be on the same page. The team must be focused on one goal. Can you imagine if a football team went out onto the field and took the line and weren't committed to making a touchdown? Maybe the coach called a running play this time around and all the wide receivers got upset because they wanted it to be a passing play. And instead of blocking for the runner, they stood on the sidelines and watched. Loose analogy, but that's kind of sometimes how it goes in our churches today. The coach calls the play, puts the team on the field, but the team refuses to cooperate because the team is not unified around one purpose and one goal. The team is divided by its own self-interest, its own ideas, and things of that nature. The Bible says we can't be that way. It says we have to be unified. If you look at the second half of verse 32, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. The unity of the church precludes self-interest. I can't be thinking about myself. I can't be thinking about my things, my wants, my desire, because I'm wholly and completely committed to the gospel of Christ. I'm committed to boldness. I'm committed to preaching to people. I'm committed to seeing people saved. Therefore, everything that I am and everything that I have is now available for that. Nothing that I have is my own. When I surrendered to Christ, I surrendered everything. I didn't just give him my heart. I didn't just give him my soul. I gave him everything that I have. My body, my possessions, my family, my will. Everything about me was surrendered to Christ when I made that conversion. So this, this conversion, this unity precludes any self-interest of my own. Okay? Think about it this way. When I was a kid, we played on a soccer team in junior high. And we were a pretty decent team. I mean, we did okay. But we had one kid on our team that, I mean, he was great. He was exceptional at playing soccer. I mean, he was the number one kid on the team. He was the captain, uh, had great skills. I mean, he was the leader on the team. The problem with the kid was is he was a ball hog. 
he didn't want to let anybody else play. He didn't want to pass the ball. He always wanted it for himself. And I know that the saying is, winners want the ball, and I get that. But at some point, if you can't share with others, you're not going to reach your goal. And there were many times I remember leaving that field, losing games by a point or two, because he had refused to pass the ball to another teammate who was open. And it happens all of the time. And that sometimes, I think, is what happens in our churches, unfortunately. Some of us are ball hogs. We want it our way, and we want to do it, and we want the glory for it. Rather than giving the glory to where it rightly belongs, recognizing that it's in God's power that we operate in anyway, it's not our own ability. So this unity precludes this self-interest, but it also provides for the needs of others. If you look at the next uh, part of the verse there in 32, it says, but they had everything in common. Nobody claimed anything for themselves, and they had it all in common, okay? They shared things. They shared their food. They shared probably their homes. They shared their possessions, whatever was needed, okay? They didn't hold anything back. They had it all in common. Think of a family. Think of a family of two, three, four, five, whatever it is living in a house. There's food in the refrigerator. There's groceries in the pantry. There's water in the plumbing system. There's electricity in the wires and the light bulbs of the house. The family is sharing all of those things. There might be one person or possibly two who are earning the money to pay for all of those things, but all of the members who live there are sharing in those things. You as a parent would never think of holding back dinner from your child, would you? How many times have you gotten up to see your child standing in front of the refrigerator door, air conditioning himself, looking for something to eat, right? (laughs) It happens at our house all the time. Best way to cool off, right? I would never think of begrudging one of my children, though, for eating my food. We have that in common. It's kind of the deal, once my wife comes home and it leaves the trunk of the car and crosses the threshold of the house, it's fair game. I mean, it is fair game. Whoever gets to it first, it's theirs. You know, they used to say, daddy gets the big piece of the chicken, not at our house. It's just first one to the, first one to the bucket, it's theirs, okay? That's how this church was living. They weren't holding anything back for themselves. They weren't partitioning off certain things. No, sorry, you can't have any of this. Oh, and this over here is mine too, but you can have the leftovers over there. Wasn't like that. They provided for one another. And we're going to see here in just a moment how they provided one another as any had need. And we're going to talk about what that concept means in just a moment. But this unity allowed this church to live in a way in which they probably weren't able to do on their own. It was only the filling of the Spirit and living in this Spirit-filled community that gave them the ability to do this. None of us want to give up our own self-interest. We're completely and wholly motivated by our own self-interest. And to sacrifice that and to lay that down for anything is an amazing task, and I believe one that is only able to be accomplished by the Spirit of God. So we see here that this Spirit-filled community is defined by its unity, but it also delivers an effective witness. Okay, if you look at the next part of the passage there, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. With great power, they were giving their testimony. Whose power? Their own power? Were they speaking it really well? Were they very verbose in their presentation of the gospel? Were they extremely bold in their presentation? Was it the forcefulness of their words? Was it the strength of their voice? Was it their appearance? No, it's not any of those things. It's the power of God. The great power with which they were speaking was the power of God's Spirit. The power of God's Spirit working through them. 
It wasn't anything about the apostles themselves. Certainly they were obedient and useful vessels. Don't get me wrong there. But it was the power of God working through them that was making things effective. They were sharing their testimony. They were testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember all the way back in Acts 1-8 from a couple of months ago. They were called to be witnesses. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Right? You'll be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria and so forth and so on, to the uttermost ends of the earth. They were called to be the witness. And what were they witnessing or testifying to? The resurrection. That is what they had seen. And it is this today that they are testifying to and that people are responding to. With great power, they are testifying about what they have seen. And the Bible records over and over and over again that people keep responding, sometimes by the thousands. Who are they speaking to? Well, it's not the believers. It's lost people. Sometimes I think we get lost in a little bit in this passage here, and we think that they were testifying and being bold amongst their own people. Kind of like what we do here sometimes. Most of us in here would call ourselves believers, and we're really bold and forceful and strong in here, right? And we're motivated by what we say we believe, and we speak up loudly, and we testify about what we know to be true. But a lot of us, when we exit those doors back there, we're not quite so bold, not quite so forceful, so strong. But the Bible here is talking about how the apostles were going out and testifying publicly. They were declaring publicly what they had seen and what they believed and what people needed to do in response. And they were responding. It's a repeating pattern that we see in the book of Acts. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The Spirit fills the people at Pentecost. Peter preaches at Pentecost. 3,000 people respond and are saved. Acts 4.4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The Holy Spirit fills Peter. He gives a sermon at the temple. Thousands respond and are saved. We see this continual and repeating pattern. This filling of the Spirit gives them boldness to speak the word, and then the effectiveness comes from their preaching. Okay? Many of us, I think, need to take a page out of, their, out of their playbook. We need to be seeking out that filling so that we can be bold in our preaching and in our witness out there. So that many will hear and many will respond. I think that if you look at the inner health of a church, it is intimately connected to the outer growth of a church. If we want to have effectiveness in our evangelism, if we want to see people saved, if we want to see the church grow, we need to be a healthy church Inwardly, anybody who has ever done any kind of gardening or horticulture can tell you that. The inner health of a plant completely determines the growth. I, I mean, I've done enough gardening in my life. I've watched, if you see a sickly, wilted-looking plant, it's not going to produce any fruit. I've had hundreds of tomato plants that have done just that to me, okay? But a healthy plant, one that is strong and vibrant and healthy on the inside, not just overloaded with fertilizer, but healthy on the inside, grows and produces much fruit, huge fruit, bountiful fruit. The church is the same way. The church has to be healthy on the inside, healthy enough to support the fruit that is going to be produced. If we're not healthy as a congregation, if we're not unified toward our one thought and purpose, we are not going to have much growth either. We're not going to produce much fruit. Here in the passage, we see that it's this unity that, that more or less causes 
the power of this effectiveness. Because they were unified, they became effective in what they were doing. Okay? The inner health of the church is directly correlated to the outer growth. We have to remember that. If we want to see God do amazing things through our church, and all of us here do, we have to work on the inside first and make sure that it is healthy so that we can be effective when we go out there into the world. So number three, a spirit-filled community also demonstrates gracious generosity. Okay, now we're going to see this passage that is so famous, that is so debated about the meaning of Christian generosity. What does it mean? How are we to employ it? Where does it come from? How does it happen? All of those different things. If you look at the passage, it says here in the beginning, or excuse me, the end of verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. That is how that sentence concludes. They were boldly preaching the word. They were boldly sharing their testimony about the resurrection of Christ and great grace was upon them all. Pay attention to those few small words there because they direct the rest of this entire passage right here. The fact that grace was upon them is what caused them and allowed them to be the church that God had called them to be. They were not going to do this on their own. They were not going to be a graciously generous church on their own. It was only the filling of the Spirit and the grace that was poured out because of that that enabled them to be what God had called them to be. It's a cause and effect relationship. We need to see that. So, Look at this. The unity of the church. They were united in one thought in one purpose. That one thought and one purpose was their witness. It was their testimony to the gospel. They were faithful in that. They carried out their witness. They delivered their testimony. Not only were many people saved because of it, but the Bible also says the church experienced great grace. When it says the grace was upon them all, it's not talking about everyone in the world. It's talking about the believers because they were unified, because they were faithful to their witness, because they went out in the world and carried out that witness, God's grace was poured out on them. And because God's grace was poured out on them, they're now able to do what it is that God has called them to do. He, they were able to live in the community that God had designed. They were able to set aside their self-interest and provide for one another. They were able to be unified in what they did, all because of the grace that has been poured out on them. We need to understand this grace is not the graciousness that was displayed between believers, but it is the grace of God in response to their unity, in response to their bold witness. God has blessed them. He has poured out his grace on them. If you can imagine it like this, imagine taking a bottle of water and imagine taking that bottle of water and a sponge. If I take a bottle of water and I pour it out into a sponge, what happens? The water goes down, it hits the sponge. And because there are many spaces and air gaps and little crevices in a sponge, that sponge will absorb that water, right? It won't spread out very far, but the sponge will soak it all up. Now imagine taking that same bottle of water and pouring it on this hard tabletop. What happens when the water hits the tabletop? It goes everywhere. It spreads out omnidirectionally, doesn't it? That's what's going on here with God's grace. The passage says that God's grace was poured them all. God, God was pouring out his grace on believers, on those who were testifying. And the, that church was like this hard tabletop. They were unified. They were tight-knit. They were, they were in there so close together, there was no separation, no division between them. So when that water hits that hard tabletop, it spreads everywhere. In the same way, when God's grace was poured out on this unified, tight-knit, no distance between the members' church, the grace went everywhere. It came down vertically, but it flowed out horizontally. And then we're going to see here in the next part of the passage what that does and what that looks like. 
It pours down from God vertically. It goes out horizontally, and the whole church was blessed because of it. First, we see here the mark of their generosity. What is the mark of their generosity? Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. Not a single one. There was no needy person in that congregation. Why? Because God's grace had been poured out on them. It flowed out horizontally to all the members, and they were giving. Remember verse 32? There was none who had any need because they were providing for one another. They were not looking out for themselves, but they were having everything in common. They were sharing everything that they had so that everyone was provided for. Well, this is a picture of what God had originally designed. If you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, some thousands of years ago in the giving of the law, and look at the book of Deuteronomy, it says those exact words. God says, There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. God always intended for all people in his congregation to be provided for. From ancient Israel and the, and the legal system that they lived under, God intended for all of them to be provided for. And they were to be provided for by the other members of the congregation. God's standard doesn't change, right? We've talked about that I don't know how many hundreds of times in this room. God's standards never change. God originally intended for his people to be provided for. He still believes and, and expects his people to be provided for in the book of Acts. He still believes and expects for his people to be provided for today. He doesn't expect for anyone, in, in any believer in a congregation to be hungry or without basic necessities. He believes all should be provided for and they should be provided for by the members of the congregation. That is the mark. When they look at the church, when they look at this community of believers, there aren't any needy. This was incredibly amazing for at this time. If you consider at the time that Acts was written and at the time that the early church lived, there were thousands of needy people. They were everywhere. They lived at a time where they lived hand to mouth. I mean, you literally worked that day for enough grain or enough money to buy something to eat that night. There was no getting paid on Friday and that had to last to the end of the next week or the end of the next month. You lived hand to mouth, day to day. There were thousands of needy people. But it says in this group of people, this group of thousands of people dwelling in this city, there were no needy persons. That had to stand as a shiny beacon in Jerusalem at this time. People had to be asking questions. What is it about these people? What's going on over there? They don't have any hungry people over there. They don't have any needy people over there. And you think that didn't open up the door for some gospel conversations? It had to have. The uniqueness of the church would have been an incredible witness and testimony to who they were and what caused this. There were no needy among them. That was the mark of this generosity. But let's look at the manner of this generosity. How was this orchestrated? How was it carried out? Well, the way in which it was carried out was from the other members of the congregation. If you look at verse 34 again. Um, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Those who had property sold the property as any had need. It doesn't say here that the property was confiscated. It doesn't say that everyone sold their property and threw it all in a hat and then they used it to provide for the rest of the congregation. It doesn't say that everyone divested themselves of every possession that they ever had. It says none of those things. What it indicates that as needs arose, people who had uh, extra properties would sell them and provide for the needs of people who were lacking. It was a time-to-time -time type of thing. 
Okay, they weren't selling everything they had, but as needs arose occasionally from time to time, a property would be sold and the proceeds would be used to meet the need of someone in the congregation. It's important that we understand that point because I think a lot of us have the idea that this is a picture of socialism or communism that the Bible is advocating here, and it's not. It is not talking about confiscating property. It's not talking about disposing of all property once and for all. Do you know what happens if everyone in a group of people sells everything they own and throws all the proceeds in a hat and tries to live on that? They might make it a few days or even a few weeks, but once that is exhausted, that's the end of it because there's nobody left with anything to use, to sell, to use for increase. If you own, a, let's say you own a business and you're a tent maker or a whatever in, in the ancient world, if you sell all of your tent making tools and you put the money in the pot, how do you make tomorrow's wages? and the next day, and the day after that. You can't. You see, you, see, you see the problem there? The Bible's not advocating that everyone dispose of everything they have, put it in a, in a common lot for everybody to live off of. That won't last. Didn't last then, won't last now. It just simply doesn't work that way. But it says that people were provided for by the sales of surplus properties, of extra properties. Um, perhaps surplus is too strong a word. They were, they were properties that were sold by people who were willing to give them. Okay, they were used and then the, the proceeds of them were divided up amongst those who needed it. These were free will offerings. This was not compelled. It was not forced. No one made these people do it. They willingly and sacrificially gave. Just as we took up an offering a moment ago and that was a free will offering, something that you sacrificed, that you gave to the Lord of your own volition. No one compelled you to do it. Nobody twisted your arm. I hope, uh, but it was a free will offering in the same way this was too. These people gave because they loved the Lord and they wanted to see his people provided for and his mission go forward and, go, and become effective. We need to understand here that it was the unity and the grace of this community that caused this to happen. No large group of people would be able to carry this out on their own apart from, the, I think, the filling of the Spirit of God. You and I are too motivated by self-interest in order to do that. We begin to get judgmental and decide who's worthy and who's not. This group here was not doing that. They were wholly committed to what the Spirit of God was leading them to do. Being filled with the Spirit, they were motivated to be gracious to one another. In response to the grace that they had received from God, they were motivated to be gracious to others around them and to provide for them. And we need to understand that while this particular encounter pictures the idea of people who are wealthy or who possess land or properties as being the givers, we need to understand that really scriptures call on all of us to be givers. If you look at 2 Corinthians 8, the passage that we read for our offertory this morning, what does that short little verse I gave you come from? It comes from an explanation by the Apostle Paul who is commending the churches of Macedonia at that time. He says, in a time of great affliction, these churches at Macedonia sacrificed out of their poverty to provide for the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem at that time was experiencing a severe famine and people were starving to death. And a collection had been taken up in the churches of Macedonia, which historically and, and from textual evidence we know were very poor, utterly destitute, had nothing. But Paul says this group gave out of their poverty. Even though they were destitute, they still took up an offering because they wanted to provide for their brothers and sisters in Christ at Jerusalem. Their love for God and the grace that he had shown them motivated them to provide for others. So we want to be careful to understand that when God calls on us to be givers and supporters of one another, he's talking to all of us. He's not just talking to a few. 
He's talking to every one of us, rich or poor or anywhere in between. God is calling on each of us to be a sacrificial giver and to provide for one another as they have need. Which brings us to the next point, the measure of the gracious community. Think about this for a moment. How did they decide who got what? Well, the passage says that they brought in the proceeds from the sales and they laid at the apostles' feet. So we know that the apostles distributed it. They were the administrative structure. They were the ones who gave it out. But what did they give? Well, the Bible says to each as any had need. It doesn't say as any had desire or as any had a want, but it says that it had need. You know, I was sitting there flipping through the channels the other night doing a little channel surfing. And Eli, my seven-year-old, comes walking in. And he says, Dad, are you watching this? I said, no, not really. I'm just kind of flipping through the channels. He says, well, can you flip it over to Monster Jam? It loves monster trucks. I said, well, I guess. Why? I need to watch Monster Jam. I said, well, wait a minute, son. I'm not sure you mean you, you need to watch Monster Jam. You mean you want to watch it. And, I mean, as seriously as I stand here, he looks me in the eyes and says, no, I need to watch Monster Champ. We watched Monster Champ. Now, he's seven and a little bit confused about what a need versus a want is, right? The problem is I'm not too convinced that most of us aren't a little confused as well. What is a need? What is a want? Well, Scripture describes a need as a basic necessity of life. Food, shelter, clothes. Not really much past that. Food, shelter, clothes. And it doesn't even say nice shelter or nice clothes. It says that you will be provided for your needs. I think wants, we sometimes confuse with needs. I want to have cable TV. I don't need it, right? My daughter wants to have a donut. She doesn't need it, even though she'll tell you she needs that donut. It's not a need. That's a want. I don't need a brand new cell phone. I want a brand new cell phone. Okay, you see the difference there? I think a lot of people get confused between needs and wants. I can't provide for myself. I have needs. No, you have wants that you can't provide for. You need shelter, clothes, and food. That's about the extent of it. I think a lot of times we also take it from the other end of the spectrum. We say, well, I need help buying food. Okay, what happened to your money? I know you're working. What happened to the money that you should have used to buy food? I paid my cell phone bill. I went on a vacation. You fill in the blank. It's not for me to decide. But something frivolous. I've spent my money on something frivolous, and now I do not have enough to provide for my needs. Does that make the church now responsible for your needs? No, it doesn't. The Bible talks about needs, food, shelter, clothing. When the proceeds were taken up from the sales of these properties, they were given to the apostles and the apostles distributed them to the people as they had need. They were fed, they were clothed, they were sheltered. That is the extent, the extent of it. That is the difference between needs and wants. We also need to understand that we're not to take advantage of the generosity. God has provided for his people through the, through the congregation of his church, but we're not to take advantage of that. We are not to use, use it, that as a safety net. We are not to avoid working or working hard or seeking to improve ourselves and so forth and so on because we see our brothers and sisters in the church as a safety net. If you look at some later teaching on this, the Apostle Paul again in 2 Thessalonians, writing to the Thessalonian church, says here, For even we, when we were with you, 
we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay, that was the command that he offered to church. Why? Because the Thessalonian church believed that the return of Christ was imminent. They thought Jesus was coming back any day. So what did they do? They quit their jobs and quit working. Jesus is going to be here tomorrow. What do I need to work for? Well, Paul goes there. He finds them doing this. He says, no, 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 no. This was not the plan. You need to be working. You do not need to be idle. He goes on in verse 11. For we hear that some of you, that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but rather busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. What is he saying there? Don't be lazy. Don't be slack. Don't use the church as a safety net. You should work quietly. You should seek to provide for your own self. In the event, in the case that you cannot, the church is here to protect you. The church is here to provide for your needs. Not your wants, but your needs. And that is the picture of the church that we see here in Acts chapter 4. One that is a gracious church. One that has experienced the grace of God. It's been poured out on them. And they are now letting that grace flow outward to their fellow man. So that no one amongst their congregation was in need. I think many of us look to the generosity of the early church and we say, why can't we be like that? Right? I mean, I, I know we've said it. I've heard it. Why can't we be like that? You want to know what the answer is? I think most of us are looking at the early church and we are looking at the result of something and we are seeking after that or desiring that thing rather than looking at what the cause is and employing that instead. We are looking at the result of this grace-empowered, grace-blessed church where no one had any need or any lack and we're saying, I want that. But we never stop to ask the question, how did they get to be that way? The answer is that they were filled with the Spirit. They sought out the filling of the Spirit of God. And when that was poured out on them, they became a unified church that brought blessing upon them through God's grace. And that is how the church was provided for. We can't simply look at the results of God's work and desire those. We have to look at the causes as well. Number four in our final point this morning, a spirit-filled community also displays individual commitment. Uh, verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. A couple of things there. Look at the first word in that passage, thus. What does thus mean? I looked it up. Thus means in this manner or in this way. The Bible now gives us a concrete example. It shows us a concrete example of a real person who really lived and who did just what we are talking about. So often I'm convinced that we as Christians, we live in a world, we live under the idea that the things that we learn in here, that we hear about in here, are just general theoretical prescriptive truths. These are great ideas. Remember, they're admirable, but they're not necessarily practical. These are great ideas. We should live like this. But we really can't. It's not very practical. This is an example of somebody who really did. The Bible's trying to communicate here that these are not just theoretical truths. That God actually expects us to do these things. Thus, Joseph, called Barnabas. Barnabas did just what was prescribed is what this is saying. Dr. Luke, the author of this book, takes this opportunity to introduce to us Barnabas. Remember Barnabas, Paul's partner, the missionary journeys, one and the same. Introduced here in a very 
inconsequential way, I think, here at this point, not giving much of a hint of what Barnabas would do later on in his ministry. But we get a little glimpse of it here, and we see from the very beginning that Barnabas is someone who is committed to the mission of the church. He is someone who is willing to sacrifice for his church, someone who's willing to give of himself in order that the gospel may go forward. He's such a giving person. The Bible records him as having a second name, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was an encouragement to the church, probably an encouragement to the apostles. Why? Most likely because of his sacrifice, because of his giving. And we will see from later revelation because of his testimony. He was the son of encouragement. He was an encouragement to the church. All churches have at least a few people like that. We all need more, but we all have a few of those people who are an encouragement to us. They are the people who actually apply what's in here. When they come in here and they hear a message on Sunday or they open the word and they see a truth, they go and they apply it. They sacrifice of themselves because the things that the Bible asks us to give are not usually easy things. They're difficult things. They're hard things that require intense sacrifice. And we have a few of those in our church, probably more than I realize and that I know. You guys probably know a few of them. I know one lady who gives of herself to drive around to small towns in Kansas and talk with small groups of people and share her testimony so that they too can hear the gospel and know what it means to be a born-again believer in Christ. She drives around and shares her testimony so they can hear what God's done in her life. We have a family who left their suburban home and moved into the inner city to witness and be missionaries in the inner city of Wichita, Kansas. We have a young lady who's on the mission field in a faraway place 18, 19 years old, living in a foreign country, trying to share the truth of Jesus with people when she could rightly, like most of us, spend her young adult years going to school and having fun. But she sacrificed that to go to a foreign country and share the truth of Jesus. Churches are full of those kinds of people, but there's not enough of them. We're all supposed to be that way. We're all supposed to be willing to sacrifice of ourselves, give up our personal comforts, give up our wants and desires in order to fulfill the needs of others. And that primary need of others is Jesus. We need to be willing to sacrifice whatever in order to deliver the gospel message, whatever it takes, in whatever way, shape, manner, or form. How many of us are actually committed to that? You know, a spirit-filled church is one who is committed to the gospel of Christ, completely committed, not only corporately, because we would all agree as a group, our church is committed to the gospel, but individually. Barnabas here in the passage was individually committed. He wasn't just part of a larger group of committed people. He was individually committed. Just like those people in our church I outlined for you a moment ago, they're individually committed to the gospel of Jesus. Are we? Are you? Are you individually committed to this thing we call the gospel? In the beginning, we spoke about a man who shared his testimony about being a millionaire. And a woman challenged him at the end. She said, well, basically, I know you were faithful once, but I dare you to do it again. At some point in each one of your lives, if you call yourself a Christ follower, you surrendered all. You gave all that you had at that time. You gave your life. You gave your possessions. You gave everything. The challenge, I think, from this story today and my challenge for you is I dare you to do it again. What do you need to do today to be fully committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to his church? What do you need to do to unify with our church family and be committed to the gospel? 
What do you need to do to have a bold witness that unflinchingly shares the truth of the gospel with people who desperately need to hear it? Are you individually committed to that goal? That's the question that only you can answer. I can't see into your heart. Your other pastors can't see into your heart. Neither can your life group leader. Only you know where you are today. But my challenge for you is I dare you to do it again. Let's pray.